You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Jesus, we're grateful, grateful for all that you do in our lives. We're grateful for just how magnificent you are and the majesty and the glory of God, uh, not only in uh, the heavens as well as the expanse of the heavens and the stars, but also right here in us, your creatures, your created ones who were made in the very image of God. And so today as we study your scripture, as we look at even some of the scientific discoveries that we've got before us that show just how intricate the details are of your creation in us, we pray, God, that it would all be for your glory and it would all be that we would deepen our worship and our understanding of you that our eyes would be open to see just how magnificent, how glory, how, how wonderful you are. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So if you remember, if you were with us last week or if you've listened online, we've been talking about, again, the heavens declaring the glory of the Lord, really looking at the stars and the expanse of the stars and how great and glorious those stars are. Obviously, we can go out on our back porch and we can see stars and there's only so much that we can see with the naked eye and we go, that's really glorious. But then when you really kind of dive in using some of the Hubble telescope uh, images and various other things, we see just how magnificent God is as he created, <coughs> excuse me, the universe and, and all that is. And so today I want to move uh, to looking at day six in creation. So we've looked at day one, day two, and day four. Again, that's not to say that three and five are not important. They're good stuff in there too. But for our purposes, we're going to look at day six where God created uh, male and female in the image of God. He created them. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We'll start in verse 24 today, looking at the various things that God created that were a little more on a micro level as opposed to a macro level. So uh, Genesis 1, starting in verse 24, we'll read a few verses here. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creepy things, beast of the earth according to their kind. And it was so, and God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so it was God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So if we begin to look at, um, whoops, got too far there. If we begin to look at creation, we see living creatures according to their kind. We've got beasts and livestock and creepy crawly things, which my three boys love those creepy crawly type things. Uh, and then it gets to verse 26 and it says, uh, after God has created all of those things, he says, let, let us make man in our image. Now we won't get into the our part of the image, but we likely know that that is the Trinity. Uh, let us make man in our image. And so, and so it was. God created man in his image. And in the image of God, he created them. 
And so as image bearers of God, Adam and Eve were created in that moment. We know a little bit more if you go to chapter 2 of Genesis. He kind of pulls that part a little bit and tells us just how he did that. From the dust of the ground, from the earth, he put Adam to sleep. He cre- uh, took a rib out of Adam and created Eve. And then he woke up and lo and behold, there was somebody like him. And uh, it was amazing. And my my wedding joke is often if i'm talking about genesis chapter two is that uh adam woke up and he says whoa man um that's all i got uh but but uh i have to think it's something like that wow where did she come from um i've been looking at all the animals none of them look like me and now here's this woman who is like me who resembles very much me but very different than me and so god created them in his image what does it mean then for God to create in His image. Now we know from the heavens and the expanse and the universe and even the entire creation story that really God didn't lift a finger in all of this. He spoke it into existence, right? So He spoke the the uh, stars into existence. Uh, you know, the the speed of light came out of His mouth, and bam, there it was. And in this same way, He spoke this what is a very complicated creature into existence like that. Brought Him out of the dust. What is complicated about this is that uh, there are intricate details of cell formations and all those things. And again, we, I want to get a little uh, scientific. Um, my kids say, you're getting a little nerdy on us, Dad. That's, that's okay. Uh, because I think it's important to see that as God created, what was He doing and how did He do it in such uh, just a speaking word and it happened. Uh, so but the thing we have to know is that we are the makeup of God Himself. When he says, let us make man in our image, there is an image bearers. We are called the image bearers of God. In other words, we have the very DNA of God inside of us. And so it, it is that when he created, he formed us in his likeness. If you flip over to Psalm 139, you also see some more of this language. Uh, before we dive into the, so some of the science things, the psalmist is actually reflecting on God knowing him from the inmost. And if you go to Psalm 139 and you go to verse 13, you begin to see, For you were formed, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, for I am fearfully set apart. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The psalmist here is reflecting on just how much God knows us, how intricately He knows the very details of who we are. We've said before, He not only created these giant stars in the universe, but He also knows the number of hairs on our head. And the psalmist knows this all well. He's saying, you knew it before I was even born. So since creation, man and woman uh, have obeyed this 
creation mandate, which was to go and and uh, and and procreate. So that's how you know we filled up the earth with other images, image bearers of God, if you will. And so, in other words, uh, when we talk about scientific things, what's been happening since creation is that one cell from a dad and one cell from a mom merge together, and they form one single cell, which is ultimately a 23 chromosome DNA match where uh, you get a new DNA. It was ordained by God and it had never been created before. And so your DNA, the inner workings of your body, are very different from the person sitting beside you uh, or from anybody else for that matter. That's, that is your identity. That's your makeup. And so just a little bit about DNA stuff. Cell formation. Uh, if we talk about cell formation, DNA is made up of a double helix. So a double helix, if you think of it like two ladders being entwined together, looks like this down here. These ladders are being uh, entwined together. This It begins in a very unpackaged sort of way. It forms our DNA when those two cells, from one from mom, one from dad, begin to combine. Uh, they're two complementary strands, and they're chemically linked together. And they're spiraling around in a counterclockwise way to make a ladder-like double-stranded molecule. Now, each step of the ladder consists of a pair of nucleotides. So you see these little steps along here. You can think about them as individual nucleotides, which are the basis of our DNA sequence. In every cell, genetic information exists in two copies, one coming from our father and one coming from our mother. It exists in two strands, and then it comes together, weaving them together in a nucleosome. So the nucleosome is really the first step of packaging the DNA of mom and dad, putting us together. Uh, the, and then after we get these nucleosomes, they begin to be wrapped around a set of proteins, which are called histones. This may be more information than you ever want to know about science, but it's helping us to understand when God said he created male and female and they are to procreate, here's what is taking place in the midst of the human body to make that happen. Chromatin then is tightly packaged DNA to form fibers. And so their next step, the nucleosomes become chromatins and they package even more tightly. And I'm giving you a very simplified version, by the way. We're not we're not going to go deep into biology or chemistry here. Uh, but these chromatins are where nucleosomes are grouped together and they form a fiber. And then finally, this last form of the DNA being completely formed is a chromosome. Again, 23 chromosomes from your mom and from your dad, and they are made up together in your DNA sequence. Now, what's fascinating is the average size of a nucleus. So a D, your DNA exists in each of, a, each of the cells inside your body. They're all reproducing themselves in the same way. And they, that DNA exists inside the nucleus of the cell. Now, the size, I told you we went really large the first two. Now we're going to go super small. The nucleus of a cell is approximately six micrometers in distance. That is a micron is another way to think about that. So we can't see that with the naked eye. So let's try to get it in perspective a little bit. If you take the smallest particle we could see, and I think we do a pretty good job. We don't have any dust on here. Uh, the sextons are doing a really good job keeping the dust off. That would have been a helpful um, uh, illustration for today because that's really one of the smallest, smallest cells that we can see, a dust particle. And that dust particle that you can see is 50 micrometers. 
So the nucleus inside of a cell is six micrometers. And so when you run your finger across your furniture, if it's dusty, you begin to build up 50 micrometers upon 50 micrometers upon 50, mi and eventually you get a little dust ball on the end of your finger. One of those dust particles is 50 microns. One of our DNA uh, uh, cells, cells that contain our DNA, is only six microns. So we're talking extremely, extremely small. And one cell that came together to make up what is over a three billion character DNA core. So we've got a cell that contains three billion characters inside it. You can imagine how kind of tiny that really is. One good way to look at this, this is, um, well, I already said that part, um, you. This looks really funny, but this is actually you at three days old. Uh, this is a magnification on the end of a needle of 16 uh, cells being formed together. This is you as an embryo. That's probably not in your family photos, right? Um, but that's you. You're, you're very small. You're very tiny. This is magnified. I don't even know how large it's magnified, but it's a 16-cell embryo on the end of a safety pin. And so God is fashioning these DNA microns in you that are now starting to form a tiny human. Now, if you keep going from three days old, you become a week old. It doesn't look a lot different. You're still, you kind of see some formation starting to happen there. But then we go to week three or week four, and you start to see the embryo starting to form out. Now, I don't know how many cells this is at this point, but eventually we're going to get to 75 trillion cells inside your body. And so we're somewhere between 16 and 75 trillion at this point. Um, then we get to week five and we start to see the heart. We start to see the liver, some of the lower limb buds, upper limb buds, various other things inside the embryo starting to be formed. And then you skip all the way three weeks later to week eight and you begin to see hands and feet and eyes beginning to form and ears starting to form and all these things that are beginning to make up you and your body. 75 trillion cells, uh, by the way, in your body as a, as a fully grown person, not a fully grown, but just as you're born, 75 trillion uh, cells. If you were to take out that DNA and stretch it out and see how long it is, you would find that that 75 cell DNA is enough times to go to the moon and back 178,000 times. That's what's made up in your body of 75 trillion cells. There's a lot of DNA in you. Um, and, and as I just said that, 50,000 of your cells died and then they made new ones. And then they just did it again. And then they just did it again. Every three seconds, your body, 50,000 cells die in your body and another 50,000 are created every three seconds. No wonder we're tired all the time, right? Exhausted. Our body is doing something pretty magnificent all the time. Night and day, it is producing these cells over and over and over. You are a magnificent creation that God has made. And so when God said, let us make man in our image, he was saying, I'm going to make all that work right there and i'm going to do it with my breath and then from now on they're going to and he knows 
that scientists are going to study this and you're going to start to figure out how did God do all this and how did it all work and what was the miracle that took place. St. Augustine says of the uh, internal science and the human body and the cells, he said, men go abroad to wonder at the height of mountains the huge waves of the sea, the long course of rivers, the vast compass of the ocean, the circular motion of the stars, but they pass by themselves and don't even notice. You see, as vast and as awesome as the stars are, you sitting here are even more fascinating than the stars. Because God said, I'm going to make those things and they're going to be awesome and powerful and wonderful and these fire, you know, this fire-breathing God that we talked about in Psalm 33, which we're going to come to here in just a minute, uh, was also the God who said, I'm going to make the man, I'm going to make man and woman in my image and I'm going to do some even more miraculous things inside of them. In the womb, a miracle is literally happening constantly. In that miracle, God is orchestrating the whole thing just as Scripture affirms that He knew us before our mother knew us. He knew us before we were in our mother's womb. He created and knows the number of hairs on our head. And He makes a promise to us. And this is the beautiful thing of God being so magnificent and so great and so powerful is that He makes a promise to us that if we trust in Him, He literally will hold us in the palm of His hands. Let that sink in for a minute, that this big God, this God who created all things through speaking, says, I know you so well, and if you trust in me, I will hold you in the palm of my hand. You know, we've got that little kid song. You remember the kid song? He's got the whole world in his hands. You know, he's, and then it goes on to, he's got you and me, sister, you and me, brother, in his hand. So true. What a theologically correct song to say that he's got it all. In his hand, and what a magnificent thing to understand. One cool miracle. I just want to tell you one really brief one that happens in the uh, in the inside your mother's womb that scientists are still just baffled by. They don't really, they can't really explain it. There's only so much they can get to. But one really cool miracle happens in the optic nerve, the eyes. Most will agree, I think all might even agree, that the eye is probably the most technologically advanced thing that we've ever seen or ever known about. I mean, how it functions, how it, how it focuses, how it sees color, how it reflects light, all these things that happen in the human eye that's happening, and we don't even know that it's happening. We just open our eyes and, woo, there it is. But one cool thing that happened in the womb was that one uh, a million, let's get, let me get this right. There's a million um, optic nerves came from your brain and a million optic nerves came from your eye. This is when you're about six months old and it began to connect and all million of those had to line up just right. So they all had to find their own partner and they had to line up just right. And when all million of them lined up, from the brain and from the eye, sight happened. One million line up in the optic nerve. That's how minute and fascinating it is. Have you ever played the game? Um, there's, a, there's like a board game where you have to, I can't remember the name of it, but you have to act out something and you have to find somebody in the room who's acting out the same thing and you match their card. You know, and then you go to the next card and you try to find somebody else who's, who's acting out, but you can't use words to talk. If you've ever played that game, it's so difficult because everybody's kind of doing loud and their own thing, especially if you've got a group of people. 
and you're trying to find one partner that is doing the same thing you're doing. And, and it's, it takes you five minutes to do that at least. Uh, and to get through the whole stack that you have, probably five to ten minutes. To think about one million nerves from the brain and the eye had to find each other in order for you to be able to see. But here's what's fascinating is that it didn't do you any good because you had a closed piece of skin over your eye at that moment. While you had sight, you still couldn't see because it's protecting you. Uh, the, that was a protection thing in the, in the embryo. One textbook describes what's about to happen next as it says at about six months, it says miraculously and mysteriously. Now, this is the scientific explanation here. Miraculously and mysteriously, a small cutting device appears and makes a slit in the skin to separate the eye. And then you had eyelids for the very first time in your mother's womb. And so if you can imagine, you've got this skin over you and this, there's no separation here. And then miraculously and mysteriously. Now, wonder what that is, right? The hand of God actually doing the work of coming in and perfectly cutting a slit in your eyes so that you could open your eyes. And now that those optic nerves have connected, you can see for the very first time in the mother's womb. You begin to see light. You begin to see the, the things that you're able to see while you're at six months old in the mother's womb. Fascinating. Fascinating that God is that powerful. Now I want to turn to Psalm 33. Actually, let me stop there for just a minute. Any thoughts or questions as before we, before we dive into kind of Psalm 33 and turning our attention to, to what God is doing? With all of this, it makes um, scientists who who uh, struggle to clone it sort of makes a joke out of yeah. God is what God has already done. Yeah, that they figure they've created something, which is it's, it's really not so much a joke, but more of an insult. No, oh, yeah, yeah. I think some would absolutely agree with you um and and the fact that they're trying to do that and we know that that god spoke and it happened is pretty fascinating how many years and hours have they tried to do something along those lines and um and and we'll never fully get to a place where it is i don't think anyway maybe i'm wrong but it doesn't appear to be that they'll ever get to a place where they're actually recreating human beings in such a way that God created human beings. He put it all in motion. He said, I'm going to do all this and you're, you're not going to understand and it's going to be fascinating and things are going to happen in your mother's womb that you, you're not even going to imagine, but I'm going to make happen. And I'm fascinated. I'm, I'm amazed every time, you know, we've had three kids now and every time we would go and uh, go to an ultrasound and you see what, what the last one looked like versus this one and you go, how is that all happening? Like, it's amazing what has taken place in there. And, uh, and my wife's body is doing some crazy things, and, but all she's doing is eating at this point, right? And then all this is happening inside. She would even say that. She's like, you know, I'm tired. Clearly I'm doing something, but I, I'm not making it happen. I'm just going about my life. I'm eating. I'm, I'm, and, the, and this child inside of me is um, well, developing. Every time I see a newborn, 
uh, in fact, I was telling uh, one of the parishioners who had a cute, cute, cute little baby in the back of the church today, that every time I see that, in all of our sin and transgressions and brokenness, the baby itself is a miracle, and it is God's way of telling us that the world must go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it, when we look at... And think about it, too. When we're, when we're talking about God in, in making image bearers, you know, people, um, that when we look at each other, how, does that, how should that change the way we look at one another? The fact that when we look at each other, whether it's the most put-together person in the world or the person who's sleeping right down here on the side of the road, um, I think about that when we do we prayer walk on Tuesday mornings a lot and uh, and and walk throughout the city and and pray, and I think about that of how easy it is to kind of have this distorted image of well that that person. Um, I mean, if we're being honest, we could go well that one's really hard to imagine the image of God, but in reality, that is the very image of God saying, "I I have created and loved this person in the same way." that I've created you who are walking around and praying for those folks. And so to, to have a different view of the way that we think about creation and the way that we think about God in, in people, uh, it changes the way, like I said last week, when we understand the magnitude of God, we understand the minuteness of what He's done as well as the magnitude of what He's done. It should change the way we begin to worship. Because... Yeah. You react to a parent, let's say, who has a child, and I don't know if this is a good example, but maybe the optic nerves didn't line up. Mm. And so the child's hard, yeah. And they're saying, Well, you tell me that God creates all this, you know, and He's perfect, okay? Why did He create my child to be blind, yeah? And you know, how do you, Mm. a God who would do this, how do you react to that, yeah? I think you could, it, not just the optic nerve, but I think you could, you know, going back to those chromosomes, um, you know, if the DNA in the chromosomes, if there's a, if there's a, an error in one of those chromosomes, then you've got a, some sort of deformity or some sort of um, um, a crippling, if you will, of, uh, because it didn't form completely. You know, the reality of that is um, we... When God created, He created perfect. But we live in a fallen and sinful world. And because of that fallen and sinfulness of the world, things aren't perfect the way they should be now. Um, because we're still waiting on God to... Uh, you know, When Adam and Eve were, were kicked out of Eden... God said, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be pain. There's going to be, there's going to be pain in childbirth. There's going to be pain and, and toil and, and, uh, and working the ground. There's going to be things that were not the case when I created perfect things. Uh, but because of the sinful nature of man, there's going to be things that are not going to be perfect on this life. I think I would couple that in the same, in the same vein of, you know, there's not a, it, it's not God punishing, I don't believe. I and they think a lot of people will think that. Well, what is God punishing me for? I have a child that's got a disability or can't see or whatever the case may be. I can tell you a very personal story in my own life. My sister has a uh, a child who's nine years old now, 
who is will be in a wheelchair permanently. Um, and at six months, he was a he was what you might say a, a perfectly able-bodied child until about six months, and then he contracted a disease uh, that caused his spinal cord to uh, begin to stop developing and actually revert back into um, uh, very infancy and began to spasm and not develop like it's supposed to. And so he can't control his arms and legs, can't can't do the things that, you know, what you might say a, a nine-year-old should be able to do. And it's fascinating. We, you know, we talk as a family oftentimes about why would, why, why did that happen? But my sister has such a, a great perspective on it. She said, because uh, I believe that God wants to use him this way. And I don't understand why. I don't understand why he's like that. But I can tell you, he is a magnificent child who... Uh, as smart as you can, as as any you can imagine, he can't. He can barely speak, but uh, but he can do things and 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 say things and read things and and uh, and comprehend things that you would go, gosh, what a smart kid. Um, and so, why did God do that? I wish I had all the answers to that. But I would say, um, um, you don't you don't want to offer somebody a platitude of, well, God has a bigger plan for them. I don't think that's really helpful oftentimes in that moment. But to say and walk along somebody and say, what does God have in store for you through this? What does God want to do in the midst of blindness, in the midst of paralytics, in the midst of disabilities, where in this fallen sinful world, things aren't perfect. We know they will be. We have assurance and a hope of that. But in the meantime, what is God? how is God using what is uh, what oftentimes people will say is imperfect in a very perfect way. I don't think they're imperfect. I think they're exactly the way that the Lord said, I'm, I've got something planned for that person. Uh, and I think that about my own nephew, that the Lord's going to use him in ways that he can never use me. Uh, and and uh, what a, I don't know if that answers your question, but honestly, I don't know any other way to answer that question other than to say, you know, we have... We, we live in, in a sinful world, and so we all have these broken bodies. Um, I think the older I get, you know, it's interesting. I wake up and something hurts, you know, and I don't know why. Like, I didn't do anything. Why, why is my knee hurting today? Did I sleep on it wrong? Did I do something funny to it? And then I have to remind myself I'm living in a broken world and that things aren't the way they're supposed to be and that, that um, eventually all these things will pass and, uh, and, and will be made whole and complete. Um, but until then, we seek what God has in store for us when that optic nerve doesn't come together or those chromosomes don't match as they should, um, that, that he has a, a greater plan for us in the midst of all that. Um, and oftentimes, we may not know what that is till, till later, uh, till after it's all said and done. So good question, though. Um, the, back to, to kind of close us up this morning just because uh, we've got to get ready for our next uh, service. But there's this promise that happens in Psalm 33, and I just want to kind of cover this real quickly. We talked about Psalm 33 in our very first time together. And we're talking about this. I mentioned a fire-breathing God. You know, when he, when he spoke and these fireballs of stars came into existence and all this happened, this fire-breathing God actually, uh, the psalmist actually turns a bit of a corner after speaking about how uh, by the word of the Lord, this is verse 8, uh, or verse 
6, excuse me, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host, all, he gathers the waters and the seas and, uh, as a, as a heap. He puts the deeps in the storehouse. And then he begins to turn this corner in verse 9. He says, For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And then you skip down to verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. But behold, in verse 18, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So there's this promise that comes. Did you catch that promise in uh, Psalm 33? of the God who created and, and made the heavens and, and breathed out the starry host. And then in verse 9, but He came uh, and He spoke and it came and He commanded and He they stood firm. And then in verse 13, and He looks down and He sees the children of man for whom He sits enthroned. And then if you go to verse 18, here's that promise. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. The promise is that this God who is so magnificent and so great and so wonderful and so powerful says again that I care about you. That my eye is on you who behold the Lord to deliver you from death and to keep you alive in famine. To deliver you from death. There, back to that question, you know, the... Yes, we're hurting, we're in pain. Eventually we're going to die here one day. That broken body, that hurtful thing, the things that didn't all come together because of a sinful world will all pass away, but we're protected from death because the Lord says, I will give you a new place. I'll give you a new hope. That new hope is that I have perfection awaiting you. That I have created it all. And I think that promise means something for us today as we look at the 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 bigness and the smallness of the things that He has created. It means that this pain and disease, in the midst of that, He holds us and He comforts us. And no matter what the circumstance is, He promises that He's with us. And for those who would believe, that is, that there is redemption and rescue at the end of all of this. And that sounds awesome. But I also want to challenge you. How does that change the way we think about life today? Because I think it's important that as we talk about these things, what does it do for us? What does it change about us in these moments? You can see how it changes us by digging just a little bit deeper. And that's where we're going to go next week. We're going to dig just a little bit deeper into these cells and what we might find. And then we're going to begin to look at these questions of Romans chapter 1. How do we do, how do we, how does all of this reflect the glory of God and how do we use that to tell others who don't understand or who don't know, who aren't willing to listen, to say, hey, take a look at God 
and see how big He is and see how great He is and embrace this promise that He has given to His people. Um, so that's where we'll go next week as we close up our time. Uh, there's a really fascinating part of the cell that I want to get to next week that won't take us long, but it should uh, promote some good discussion next week of how and how we see the very creation of God in each and every one of us. If you have questions, by the way, feel free to shoot me those throughout the week. And uh, if I'm not answering some of those, I'll work on them and we can bring up some of those questions next week as we wrap up our time. Uh, good questions this, uh, today, and if there's others, I'll be happy to try and talk to those. As I've said, I'm not a scientist, but I like to look at these things. And if I don't know the answer, I'll, I'll go and find somebody who does. And um, we can, uh, we'll, we'll talk through it together. Any other thoughts before we close this morning? If we lose 50,000 and gain 50,000 in the blink of an eye, why are we getting old? <laughs> yeah, that is... You're only uh, replacing 49. Ooh, yeah. 49,999. And so you... No, no. Uh, uh, that is a great question. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> next time. There, yeah, next time. There's a lot in that question, let me tell you. Uh, so, good. Uh, well, let's pray, and then we'll, for those who haven't gone to church, we'll get ready for our next service. Father, we're thankful, again, thankful for all that you do, all your creation. I'm thankful for each and every person who sits in this room, that, Lord, you have intricately woven uh, in their mother's womb before they were ever thought about. God, you knew about them, and I thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, that you have a purpose for each of us. Um, you have a purpose even when things aren't the way we think they should be. That There is a purpose indeed for your glory. And so would you show that to us? Would you indeed deepen our worship as uh, we understand these things and the greatness of who you are? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.